All right. And actually, uh, I was just thinking about in terms of that song, sometimes we end up being a little bit complacent in our own fight against our own sin, right? I know like we all fall into rhythms and routines and we just kind of maybe out of discouragement kind of give up that fight a little bit, but it is so significant uh, just in terms of as parents to children, right, that we want to overcome the sin in our lives and, and as much as possible see our kids live free from the slavery of the sin that maybe our grandparents and our parents and maybe even we at some point struggled with, that it is a worthy cause and pursuit to fight that fight against our flesh. And maybe if you don't have kids, I want to point out that you are a good and godly example to the family of believers. You are an example to all others here. Or the freedom that God gives you is then something that you can share with others around you. You can understand where they've been and you can recognize that Jesus still loves in the midst of that type of experience and that God doesn't give up. Uh, that God will bring to fruition the work that He's begun in us and He doesn't quit. He's invested for the long term. And so, even if you've been a believer you know, for over a decade and you're like, I'm still struggling with the same stuff, God hasn't quit on you and you shouldn't quit bringing that situation, that issue to Him and trust that He's going to use it for the sake of your growth and your learning and that we grow as believers from grace to grace. And so it's not about condemnation or feeling guilty enough or feeling bad enough about our sin that we finally find freedom. It's about recognizing how much love and grace that God has given us His people that we can live free. And yes, Jesus is worthy of our conducting ourselves in a manner mindful of the Gospel. Alright, so that wasn't even the sermon, but there you go. Uh, so we've been going through uh, Hebrews 11, called the Hall of Faith, and, and we've been considering what does it mean to have faith? What does faith mean for us? How can we look at those who have gone before us, who have been commended for their faith, and apply that to our lives? Because what's wonderful is that the Bible is incredibly, brutally honest about humanity, that in all of our failures, in all of our struggles and suffering, uh, right, we still screw up. And as we read the very people that the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews to write about, as we read about these huge moments of faith, we also, as we go back and read their story, find out that they're, they're screw-ups, right? That they're not perfect, that they mess up all the time, but God still uses people like them, and God is interested in our generation using people like us, all right? And so it's an encouraging thing when we end up seeing that. And uh, today, instead of one individual, which we'd been recently reading about Moses, we're going to read about the people of God, the people of Israel. And it picks up in Hebrews 11, verse 29. And it says this, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Uh, and so obviously there's a mix of both rejoicing and sorrow. There's God victoriously rescuing while also bringing judgment in the same verse. And oftentimes 
It's hard to separate those two things in the scriptures. Well, God is in one point working to bring justice and judgment. In other instances, he's bringing freedom and deliverance. Uh, And so we see both of those things present in this verse. But the reason that the people of God were able to go through, cross the Red Sea as on dry ground, you might be familiar with that story. Uh, Your kids might be coloring pictures about it right now. Uh, we'll, We'll look at the actual text in a moment. But the reason that they were able to do so was by faith, that they were able to pass through the waters as on dry land. And just like, uh, for instance, when Peter uh, sees Jesus walking on the water, the reason he was able to right, say, Lord, if it's you, call me out, beckon me onto the water, and he walks out too, was because of faith. Even though, in the case of Peter, it was short-lived faith, uh, but Jesus caught him, Jesus saved him, didn't let him didn't let him drown, and he brings him back into the boat, right? And so it is by faith that they walked through a raging sea in the midst of wind, that it was by faith that they saw walls of water on the side of them and had to choose to enter into that situation and walk through it to the other side. And so in Exodus 14, let's pick up the story and, and read this, and let's see how well I can pronounce these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp it by the sea. And so, I just want to point out from this one passage that it was the Lord that told and sent the people of Israel to camp and essentially corner themselves by the Red Sea. That the the Lord in leading his people placed them in a position of what seemed like vulnerability that you might be like, God, that was foolish. But no, this was on purpose. And God does the same thing in our lives where he might place us in a position in which it looks like there's no hope. It looks like we're cornered, but it's for the sake of his delivering us and for the sake of him being glorified as he brings about our good. Verse 3, he says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel... They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And actually, back in Exodus 3 through 6, as God's engaging with Moses and calls him from the the burning bush, you might remember that story, uh, that it's in that moment that God is intending that the people of Israel would know that he is the Lord. And here in this story of the Red Sea, his intent is partly for the Egyptians and the nations of the world to know that he is the Lord. And that testimony is one that's going to carry out to the surrounding nations and bring about even the salvation of people like Rahab. And so uh, God says this is his plan. He's going to be glorified over even this rebellious group of people that has no intention of worshiping God. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by pi Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And so what's interesting is God had already told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart, but when we look at the narrative of that account, it was Pharaoh in his mind that he was changed, that he and his servants had changed their minds, and then afterwards God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And we've talked about that before, but I just want to point out, oftentimes it's humans that harden their own hearts, and then God says, I'm just going to turn up the volume. And that seems to be what he does. And so Pharaoh and his host chase after them. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And so they're cornered by the sea, and they see this army coming at them, and they are not a people of war. They were slaves for over 400 years. And now they feel hopeless. They're afraid, right? They're, They're scared. And some of them begin to cry out to the Lord. And maybe some of it was in blasphemy, blaming God. But others, it might have been legitimate faith prayer, and I think that is the case, as we'll see, as Hebrews seems to have already suggested. But it doesn't seem, and I'll build the case, it does not seem as though all of them were displaying faith. Uh, Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so notice at a point of crisis, they blame the leadership. They blame Moses. They say how foolish his plan was. They say, I told you so. Right? We told you this was going to happen, Moses. We told you it was better when we were slaves. And they even say that, right, kind of speaking in a degree, blasphemy against God. God, it would have been better if you left us as slaves. We would have preferred another hundred years of slavery than have been set free and be out in this wilderness. And so verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And so this is the response of a people of faith to fear not the circumstances that they're looking at. They are appropriately to have fear of the Lord, but not of those who might be trying to take their lives. They are to stand firm and to see and look that they would themselves observe God's rescue, God's salvation and plan as he delivers them. Verse 14, Moses says, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so it wasn't as though, as in some cases, God empowers them to go to war. No, he says, you're not even going to have to fight for yourselves. You just have to stay silent that all of these thoughts and criticisms and doubts, instead of expressing them from your mouth in a, in a claim of 
you know, God, I know better than you. God, I told you so. That they should keep silent and that the Lord would be the one to fight for them. And this is something that's interesting. God, loving God, powerful God, creator God is one who fights. He is one who is willing to fight for those he loves. And this is a good thing. All right, if God were to neglect right, the needs of his people and the cry for justice, right, that would not be as good. That this is something that the Lord is known for. And in fact, in the next chapter, as they sing a song of worship, the first instance within the scriptures where worship is displayed, that they sing this song, and uh, this is what they say. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And so I just want to point out, like that perhaps feels uncomfortable to us, the idea that the Lord is a man of war. But it is good news to those who have been slaves. It is good news to those who have been oppressed that the Lord is one who acts on behalf of his people. And it is not as though he is swift to judgment because the Lord is slow to anger and he is quick to forgive. Right? That the Lord was gracious and forgiving right, to the Egyptians to a degree for over 400 years. He gave them opportunity to repent. But when the Lord chooses in, in the right time to bring justice, it is a good thing and it is good news to those who have been oppressed. Uh, so let's go back to verse 15, Joe, if you could. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so once again, part of the reason why God acts is, yes, to deliver the oppressed, to care for those he loves, but also for him to be glorified. And that might feel as though like, you know, is God proud or is God boasting? But no, it is a good thing when God is glorified. It is a good and glorious thing when God shares his presence and his glory and inhabits his people as a temple. All right, that God is the most good gift that he could ever give anyone And so he being glorified, us viewing him in right light rather than a lie or a version or a corruption or a twisted version of who he is or trying to form him in our own image, it is a good thing when God is glorified and magnified and lifted up. And it's not as though we're exaggerating or flattering him. We are understanding him for who he actually is and typically in this world, only in a fractional part, right? Because like we haven't yet experienced the full glory of God on display. 
right? Like, but it is a good thing for God to be glorified. Uh, case in point, Jesus, speaking of his own death, was saying that uh, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. All right, and so that's a good thing for humanity when Jesus is glorified. So, uh, verse 19, then the angel of God, so God his presence himself, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and now went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And so God himself steps in between his people and the enemy. That God steps into the gap in, in means to defend them. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back. And so it wasn't Moses that did the work. It wasn't Moses that did the miracle. But Moses obeyed what God had called him to do, and God did the work. And that's the same thing that God works through each of you. His Holy Spirit works through you, right? We are called to, to walk out the good works that He's called us to, but it's not our power, right? We are earthen vessels that, that bear this power, that bring this light to this world. It's not about us. It's all about Him. And it's the Lord that drove the sea back. And so how did the Lord do it? By a strong east wind all night. And I, and I want us to, to look at the descriptive words as they experience this miracle. Okay, notice that they were able to describe the duration of the wind, the direction of the wind, the strength of the wind. All right, that when we read uh, Exodus 14, which is narrative, and compare it to Exodus 15, which is poetic and song, the types of verbs are so drastically different that we can tell the author's intent that they are describing an actual event. Okay, that they're not just coming up with some cute little story for us to walk away with. That a scientist observing the outcomes of this day, they would have written the same thing. Maybe they would have included wind speed, right? Maybe they would have included some other factors, but they would have observed the same thing. A strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. They're describing even the humidity of, of the dirt, right? And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. And so notice the types of observations of those who see God's working. All right, this isn't some made-up story. This is what they experienced. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And so even in their own sight, in their own eyes, they're realizing not simply that God was fighting against the Egyptians, but that the Lord was fighting for these former slaves. That the Lord was fighting for the people of Israel. And now this is interesting. Not only does God work a miracle through Moses to part the waters, but he also works through Moses to close them. Both instances are God's 
working. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and the, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and, the covered, and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host that Pharaoh had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. And so Moses also had to, by faith, close the sea, close the gap. But I want to highlight back in verse 27, if you could, Joe, it said that the sea returned to its normal course. All right, and it said something similar in 28, that the waters returned. And I want us to think about this. The fact that nature has a consistent pattern of predictable behavior, a normal course, is not an indication that miracles do not happen. The fact that nature can be looked upon and studied and described with laws and formulas, right? That the sea is going to interact with nature, the gravity of the planet, the pressure of the atmosphere, the gravity of the moon. It interacts with the wind itself, right? That if we were to go to the Red Sea today, we would likely see it behaving in its normal course. And that's actually a good thing, all right? That is a good thing for the testimony and the working of God. It's, it's good that He as Creator makes our planet predictable. That we can see evidence of God's divine nature and His eternal attributes in the very things that He has made. And, and that for the majority of time, it acts the same. And what we're looking at here is that there's a law-like behavior of nature versus moments in which the lawmaker shows up and interrupts it. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. There's value in the fact that miracles are not always happening. And depending on how you might use the word miracle, we could argue, yes, they are always happening as Christ is sustaining the very creation that he's made. But let's just say that when things are, are taking place in their normal course, this is a good thing. This is a good thing because... It allows God's working to be visible when he works miraculously. That the signal of a miracle shows up against a background of the noise of normalcy. That it allows signal to come through. That we can tell when God is acting significantly amongst his people, fulfilling the very prophecies or the signs that he's given. That miracles are not only intended to be blessings, but to be signs. They're meant to be seen against a backdrop so we can, we can figure out that God is moving in this moment and that we can come to the point of trusting in Him. And so there's value in that sense, right? Just like if, if, on, if you tune your radio and it just has a whole bunch of voices coming in from every possible channel, that's not helpful. Or if you have a, like a walkie-talkie or something and there's just voices at all times, you can't tell the signal from the noise. But the fact that when a voice comes in from the background of static, you can tell there's intelligence 
You can tell that there's purpose to the message that's being given. And so, verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Right? That's not a fact that we would necessarily want to celebrate in. But the Bible documents it, and it was meaningful to them. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I just want to point out, as far as their seeing the Egyptians dead on the shore, what that would mean to them as they are now on the other side of this sea. That God not only worked a miracle in delivering them through the sea, but God also had defeated the enemies, their pursuers, those who would bring them back into oppression. And that they were going to be resilient in their pursuit of the Egyptians. And that by seeing that, that was actually an opportunity for them to have hope that their children would no longer be slaves. That their children would no longer live a life of fear or that their baby boys being born would not be tossed into the Nile. That this was something that God was showing them so that they had assurance that they were free. And this was good news to them. And as a result, the people feared not the Egyptians, but they feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and Moses. And so when we read in Hebrews 11, right, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, we can begin to see like there were moments where some of them seemed to doubt and others displayed faith. Or some of them had doubts, but then they, like Moses tells them, remain silent, stand firm. And they're able to do so and just, and just okay, like I'm, I've got all sorts of questions going on in my mind, but I'm going to trust God and I'm going to follow through this ocean and trust God in that moment. That we can see that in Hebrews 11, the author celebrates this moment as a moment of faith on display as people interact with the God who loves them and saves them. And other places in the scriptures, they sing songs to the Lord about this moment. And I just want to read for us a couple moments so we get more clarity about why God acted in that moment. In Nehemiah chapter 9, another season in which the people of Israel were now in exile and oppressed, and coming back to return to rebuild Jerusalem. And there's a time where there's many enemies oppressing and opposing them, not wanting that work to continue. Nehemiah prays, and he reminds himself and the people he's with who God is. He says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all them, and the host of heaven worships you. And so in prayer, he's reminding himself of who God is. And in verse 9, I skipped a little bit, he says this, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers as a stone into mighty waters. And so you can see that in Nehemiah's mind, when he's thinking back on this story, 
And he's thinking about his current experience and the enemies that are coming against him and God's work in his life. He reminds himself that God is the creator, that God created all things, including the sea. And he reminds himself of why God showed up at the Red Sea. Because God himself saw the affliction from Egypt. And he heard the cry of the Israelites at the Red Sea. That God notices, God listens, God hears our prayers even in moments of grieving. That God sees those things and God acts. That God performs signs and wonders. And so Nehemiah was looking back at that moment and saw something about the character of God. And he says, God's going to do the same thing for us today. We can expect God to be consistent and reliable in his nature. And so in their prayers and their need for boldness to stand against enemies, this is what he does. He reminds himself of how God acted in the past. Now here's, here's a question that I've already alluded to. Hebrews 11 said that it was by faith that the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. But it does not seem as though all of them had faith. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes about this moment. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And over and over he's saying in our heritage, in our history, the people of God he says, all of them passed through the Red Sea. All of them experienced God's provision. But notice this, he says, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In Hebrews 11, we've read the fact that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And here, the very people whom all of them passed through the Red Sea most of them God was displeased with. That perhaps they lost their faith or perhaps some of them never had it, right? But God was displeased with most of the very people that he had rescued from Egypt, that he had delivered from even the Passover, that he had walked them through the Red Sea. Most of them he was displeased. It's possible, it's likely, it's because they didn't have faith. In fact, it's interesting to think that while all crossed the Red Sea, it was not all who crossed the wilderness. That as they experienced further doubt or difficulty, they complained again against God, even though they'd seen so many miracles. And so what I'm considering is perhaps it was for the faith of some that God had parted the sea and all were able to pass through. In fact, uh, Joe, we'll skip to Psalm 106, a song once again about this moment. And we don't merely relate to our ancestors or those who have had faith before us because of their amazing faith and good works, but also because of their failures. And this is what the psalmist says. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty 
power. And so some of the very Israelites that crossed through the sea seemed to be of lacking faith. They seemed to be those who were rebelling against God. And yet, perhaps for the sake of few who did have faith, he allowed all to be rescued and redeemed. And part of the reason that God does this is for his name's sake. And so when it comes to the the why God rescued you, we've, we've begun to get some clues. Because he saw their oppression, he heard their cry. It was because of his namesake and his glory that needed to be proclaimed to the world. But I also want to point out that it was because of love that God acted. It was because of love, and it alluded to that fact in that psalm. But it's even more clearly written in Psalm 136, in which for 26 verses, repeatedly, the phrase about his steadfast love endures forever is said again and again. And this is what it says in Psalm 136, verse 13. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. That the reason God acts in that moment is because his love is steadfast and sure and reliable. It is something that can be trusted in. And perhaps in reading that psalm, you might want only the dividing of the Red Sea or the deliverance of Israel to be ascribed to the steadfast love of the Lord. But notice it even includes his casting Pharaoh and his host into the sea as being motivated by his steadfast love. Right? Perhaps we're a little bit uncomfortable with that. But nonetheless, even that, even in the midst of judgment, He was working his rescue, and it was motivated by love, that the Lord had seen and heard, and he acted out of love to bring about deliverance. He delivered them from their enemies. Joe, let's go to that last slide. And so 26 times in this psalm, it says that it was his steadfast love that endured forever. And we read about how the waters of the sea, although often seem chaotic, Right? They, they're in this normal state of just experiencing the physics of the world that God had made. Right? And God interrupted and intervened in that moment to deliver and bring hope to His people. That the struggle and suffering in life may at times seem relentless, but the thing that can be relied upon is that God's love is consistent. It's repeatable. It's predictable, it's on display, that God's love is steadfast. That even generations later, Nehemiah could find hope in his current struggle because he saw God's love on display in previous generations. And you and I can have the same assurance and hope. That we can stand firm. That we can look to the Lord. We can fear not the world around us. And that we can fear the one who made us. That we can trust him. And we can see God's delivering work done in our lives. In in before our eyes. In the lives of those around us. That as we by faith cross through tumultuous seasons of life, we will see God's working. That God will sometimes have us walk through moments like that. And while life is chaotic, God's love is steadfast and sure. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that You seek to liberate those who are oppressed, that You are a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. And we thank You, Lord, that You seek to liberate Your people and have done so for generations and that it's motivated by love. And I thank You, Lord, that when You, Jesus, came to this earth to die on the cross, it was in our place and for our sins that we would no longer be slaves of sin, but that You would set us free, that You would offer us forgiveness, that You would adopt us into Your household. And I thank You, Lord, that that You, with great urgency and love, displayed that love to us, that we saw the salvation of the Lord at work as You died in our place for our sin so that we could be set free. And upon looking at Your death, we saw that we could now live. And upon looking to the resurrection, we see that one day You will raise us anew, that we will no longer be in this world, and that whatever suffering we experience here is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. And so we praise You this day. We give You the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.